Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com let me tell you about a time that i felt very alienated living here in china i used to be an english teacher at an international school in this small city called Gang here in china and every year they would have an english speech competition they would always ask me to be one of the judges As a judge, we were asked to rate, on a scale of 1 to 10, certain aspects of a student's speech. How good was their argument, how grammatical it was, etc. All of it seemed very subjective as far as grading on a scale of 1 to 10, but I thought I had a pretty good handle on what the criteria was. But there was one category that seemed exceedingly opaque. They asked me to judge how well the student delivered the speech on a scale of 1 to 10. I was the only native English speaker on the panel of judges. The other judges were English teachers that were Chinese. And it seemed to me that we were really at odds about what it meant to deliver a good speech. I remember one eighth grade girl came in and she delivered a really good speech, honestly. She had perfect posture. She looked upwards and off into the distance. She enunciated perfectly. But one thing was that she kind of had this sort of strange upward intonation that struck me as kind of weird and insincere. She also had these very staged hand motions to go along with the speech. And although it was like perfectly written, I definitely gave her a lower grade on the delivery of the speech. A boy came in and gave a similarly well-written speech, but he kind of had this very relaxed, this sort of honed carelessness that came off as totally natural. I found this approach to be a much better delivery of the speech, and I gave him an excellent grade. So after we assessed the speeches, um, my Chinese colleagues and I had an opportunity to talk about who we thought were sort of the best speeches. And I found out that where I, I had rewarded the boy and his sort of natural composure, they had seen this as disingenuous. They thought he wasn't taking the speech very seriously. And as far as the girl's speech, they thought she had done absolutely perfectly. What I had found strange and disingenuous, they thought was well-honed poise. I think a lot of coverage about what it's like to live in China makes it feel like China is so vastly different from Western culture, from American culture. I've never really felt that way. I think people are mostly just people. But every once in a while, you get hit with something that makes you feel like there's this massive chasm between Chinese culture and the West. In that moment of judging the speeches, there was just so much that I didn't understand about China, about how things are to be evaluated. I don't know if this episode will answer any big questions, 
but I want to talk about fairness and how society decides to confer benefits on some people and not others. Chapter 7. We all get schooled by Wenfei. Let's meet Wenfei. So my name is Wenfei Zhou, and uh, so let's just start from the beginning. I was born in Kunming, uh, in Yunnan province. Uh, half my family is actually from Guizhou, another from Yunnan. So this is Wenfei. He runs a business in Shanghai where he helps Chinese students apply to colleges overseas. More specifically, he helps kids get into American colleges. Basically, since the financial crisis in 2008, there's been this steep rise in applications coming from China to study abroad in the United States. American colleges have become increasingly dependent on the money that comes from international students. The largest portion of international students come from China. This trend has also meant big business in China for people like Wen Fei, who help guide kids through the college process. What gives Wen Fei the real edge in doing his work is his own personal experience. A small part of my family actually, uh, you know, got out of China and after 1989, you know, the Tiananmen Square kind of thing, uh, while my uncle was an organizer, so he uh, escaped. And uh, so, and then he became an engineer. So my uncle was like, yeah, why don't you just come to, you know, United States? Now the thing is that my mother was very accomplished uh, chemical engineer. And so she was, she got, she got this uh, special, like one was like talented engineering visa or whatever. So she just went to the United States and uh, she moved to Maryland. So, and then one day, I think I was 13, my mom called my grandparents and said, you know, ask him, does he want to go to come to America? I was like, yeah, why not? Wenfei emigrated to the United States when he was just 13 years old. He attended high school and college, and much of his higher education, not in China, but in the United States. When it comes to helping kids get into college, he has the unique perspective of understanding how American schooling works in a broad sense. This may not be particularly unique now. Plenty of Chinese students go to high school abroad and college abroad now. But when he arrived in the United States in 2004, this was before the first big wave of Chinese students coming to the United States. I arrived in Maryland September 14th, and I began school in September 16th. So I still remember I was meeting with a principal. The principal was just like, yeah, we never deal with a case like you. There were like totally three Asians in the entire school. It's a big public high school. Uh, Blair High School has like 2,500 people, I think. It's a huge school, but no, no Asians, 97% white. They barely have black people. All the immigrants they deal with was like Hispanic. I remember the moment I arrived in Maryland, I was forced to take a test. So my math was like perfect. And my English was like total trash. It's just very bad, right? And, uh, and in terms of transition, the biggest shock was, you know, I don't know what was homeroom. Like nobody told me, my mom had no idea. So I just went like homeroom, like what the hell is homeroom? I literally was sitting in the cafeteria for like the first day. I was like, what is going on? Why is people moving around in school? What is locker? I never really locked my locker because I just don't know how to open it. In typical American public school fashion, they didn't have the kinds of resources to make Wenfei's transition less jarring. 
I cannot tell white people apart, not to be racist, but yeah. they assign like two girls, one is Emily and another is Catherine, and I literally cannot tell them apart. So when Emily would be sitting next to me in biology class and you know, Catherine was sitting to me like in government class in the beginning, they're both blonde. So I'm like, what, like who is who? Like, I was really afraid to, you know, call the wrong name. When I moved to the school, they never seen Asian people before, especially people like me who's, who actually is like a fop, you know, fresh off the boat. So people would go, oh, Jack Jackie Chan, you know, you are so cool. Do you know Kung Fu? Like, uh, do you have like a concubine in your like, uh, in your home? You know, do you date white girls? You know, does your family forbid you to date white girls? Like stuff like that. And I don't think it's really racism. They find me extremely exotic for, for some reason. I was like the coolest kid. In Wenfei's high school experience, I think the thing that surprised him the most was just sort of the disorder of American public school. I mean, Chinese public school is also pretty disorderly in its own way but American public school is just so free. You know, just freshman public high school, all kind of crazy stuff. People cannot even stand up straight in a line and you know, you have people like raising hell in classes, you have this like, public high school do not have a dress code, so everybody wear whatever the hell they want to wear. So, you know, <laughs> just so you have like goth, <laughs> you know, just like, what is going on? But I mean, it's an interesting experience. So I had no social life. <laughs> I mean, I didn't went to prom. I mean, I was like the president of vice president of National Honor Society. I mean, I mean, I think I check every box of Asian stereotype, right? I was a math lead. I was into computers. <laughs> you know, I was into math. I was in chess club. I was a president of Gamer Society. So in terms of social life, I just associate with people who are like me. Um, so my best friends were like Greek immigrant, this Jewish kid. Like we always hang out and play like Dungeon and Dragon, you know. As somebody who spent the first 13 years of their life living in China, I wanted to know what were some of the alienating experiences for Wenfei. I, um, well, the thing is that there was a lot of culture shock. I learned English by watching TV. And what's a guy's name who does like divorce and all the things? Jerry Springer? I love Jerry Springer. I just watch that every day because I remember it's like after Yu-Gi-Oh, it's Jerry Springer. I'm like, my mom loved that show too. It's like crazy stuff. My mom, my mom was like, this is what Americans are like, <laughs> like Jerry Springer. <laughs> but I mean, it really fit into uh, where I was at the time. You know, I was in Maryland. Teenagers, they just go to like Waffle House or go to like, you know, gas station and try to like bump off a cigarette. Like I'm like cigarette, like I'll be like the coolest kid in town because you know, I, I, I smoke. But my mom placed a very heavy emphasis on the idea like, you need to integrate into like the American culture. So I was forced to go to a church because my mom is like, Americans love them churches. I'm like, yes, church. <laughs> so I went to a Baptist church for four years. <laughs> and it's, a, it's one of those like, yeah, Baptist. And I had some culture shock because, um, you know, in China, when you think about the church, you think about the Catholic church was like, uh, you know, like people playing those instruments and everybody dressed like very fancy, very serious, you know, just like mafia type, like just black and very formal, right? And then I went to the Baptist church, people waving hands, crying and singing rock songs, like Christian rock. I'm like, what the heck is this? <laughs> like, what is going on? Obviously, a lot of high schoolers are angsty, but when Faye's rebelliousness was sort of out of the ordinary. When he was in high school, he just happened upon a passion that became defining in his life. You sort of live in your own head too. Like while I was like 15 and 16, I just, you know, watch anime, 
you know, watch like Matrix and listen to like punk music, you know. You know, the reason why I studied French was because I like Matrix. So in Matrix, you know, the first one, uh, Leo, Neo, when he, uh, you know, he went to open that door, remember, remember? Yeah. He was waking up, wake up, Neo. And Neo went to the thing and he opened up his like book. The book that he opened to is, uh, it's a philosophy uh, book by Jean Baudrillard called uh, The Simulation and uh, Simulacra. I bought that book when I was like 14. So I began to read it. I was like, this is amazing. I was deeply into this hacker and counterculture thing I was in uh, while I was in Maryland. So um, that's how I, I was like, wow, French is amazing. You have all those like awesome philosophers and it's so radical. I mean, unlike, you know, American philosopher, you know, John Ross and all those, it's just so boring American philosophy. So I was really into, you know, all those like postmodern philosophy. So I study philosophy. Wenfei isn't just your normal smart kid. He watches The Matrix and decides to read all the postmodern French philosophers he can get his hands on. I get this from a personal perspective. Sure, French philosophy is an escape from boring-ass American philosophy, but postmodernism that Wenfei loves so much is the philosophy of the outsider, of the person who looks around their environment and feels deeply alienated. Actually, later in his education, he ended up going to the École Normale Supérieure, the world-renowned French philosophy school, where his postmodern heroes like Foucault and Derrida studied and taught. I think this particular interest of his, postmodern philosophy, informs much of his life and his work, as we'll see later. I think another experience that will inform his work directly, helping Chinese kids get into college in these states, is that he himself didn't get into his dream school. Uh, let's talk about college. Where'd you mm -hmm. go to school? You well, go to uh, so I did my undergrad in University of Maryland. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so like, I ended up there because they gave me the full, full ride. So I got a full ride in Maryland. And uh, yeah, I didn't get my dream school, Johns Hopkins. I studied, uh, I began as a computer science major and philosophy minor. I was really into robotics and you know AI and all those stuff. But then um, I changed my mind uh, because I think uh, too many Asian people, uh, <laughs> I changed to English and French. <laughs> so I graduated with a degree in English literature and French, French studies. Again, this moment I think is important to his work and we'll talk about it more later. But I guess I just wanna say, we see this kid with such an interesting story coming from China. And at this point in history, not that many kids were coming from China to come live in the United States. He had such good grades. He had unique interests. Now, Johns Hopkins is a private institution. It doesn't owe him a spot or something. But it just seems crazy to me that that sort of profile, that sort of kid, wouldn't get into that school. This is a guy who ends up going to the École Normale Supérieure. Then he ultimately went on to get his master's in education from Stanford. So after Wenfei graduates from Stanford, he comes back to China. He moves to Shanghai and decides to start a center to help Chinese kids get into colleges abroad. He leverages his experience living in the United States and his expertise to help these kids get into the school that they want to. But before we get into all of that, I want to pick his brain about the Chinese education system. Many of his students, students who want to study abroad, are trying to escape the Chinese schooling system. So I think it's important to understand what it is they're trying to escape. Since he had the unique experience of studying in both the US and in China, 
I wondered how these two experiences compared. This is what he said when I asked him if he thought his studies in the United States were difficult. I say so easy compared to China. It's just well, it's easy for several reasons, right? So in China, even when I was middle school. You know, I go to school around seven o'clock, and then the afternoon class goes all the way from like three o'clock to like seven, eight, or nine. It depends on how nice your teacher are. You know, if your teacher is sadistic, you know, you stay there until eleven. Yeah, and then you have homework on top of that. So in China, all your time, every single block of time, is curated. It's managed by、um, by someone else. But in America, you know, you go to school at seven, you get out at two, and then in the afternoon, you do whatever the hell you want. And、uh, teachers are, I think, in America, were like, you no, know, they're, they're very nice. They're very nice. If you want to ask questions, they always answer. They're very professional. So high school was easy for me, especially mathematics. I never seriously work in math until like calculus. Having worked in the Chinese education system, I can attest to how brutal it is. It's traumatic. It's like a Buddhist conception of hell. There's eternal hours and mind-numbingly boring lectures, and just the infernal tedium of the masses of homework that every student has. It's also worth mentioning that in some cases, order is maintained through corporal punishment. American schooling can be tedious and brutal as well, but the Chinese school system is is a different beast. It begs the question: Why? Why is the Chinese system so terrible? It goes like this, right? So very early, you know that everybody's your enemy, right? So first of all, kindergarten—you need to go to a good kindergarten. Now, if your kindergarten sucks, or if your preschool thing sucks, or your mom is not educated or something, then you don't end up in a very good elementary school. Then elementary school, you need to take what what you call the you know entrance examination for middle school. So by the time when you are eleven, you need to have like you need to sit down for like four or five hours to like finish your exam, so I can go to like a decent school. And Chinese education is very like tier and rank based. So out of like two hundred elementary school students, like very good、uh, middle school will only take like. Five percent, or even less, students from a specific elementary school. So you are made to compete. Now, by the time you go to middle school, you not only compete with the people in your county or in your district, you compete with people with whole entire province. So let's say you want to go to in Shanghai, Shanghai Fuzhong, which is like the or Shanghai Zhongxue, Shanghai High School,、uh, two best you know high school here、uh, in China. You have to compete with hundreds of thousands of students in Shanghai. And hundred and hundred thousand students outside of Shanghai, so that's how horrifying that competition is. And of course, by the time you go to college, then you're competing with twenty million people. <laughs> so, so that's like the system. The thing is that in China, in every level of schooling, you're always competing to get into a better school. And because everything is graded on a curve, it's not about getting a certain grade. It's about beating all the kids around you. From day one, your parents are pushing you to beat the rest of the kids in your class, so that someday you can finally get into the right university. But again, why? Why is this the way the system works? Why is there so much pressure? Well, to understand that, let's get a little history and philosophy lesson from Wen Fei. The first thing to understand about Chinese education is that in China, throughout its long history, there's always been this immense emphasis placed on testing. 
Chinese education began earnest in after the after the Xinhai Revolution, after the Republic of China was established, like ancient China, let's say from like、uh, from the Qing Dynasty to like the Qing, the last dynasty of China, education was really a way to select the best servants, the best functionaries for the state. So that is not really education; it's more like brainwashing. A lot of sense. It's more like a way of sorting. Talented people, a way of incentivizing、uh, proper behavior, a way of like、uh, instilling doctrines of the state. We do see a lineage of like the emphasis on high-stake testing, but like, but in ancient China, the test was ideology. You have to memorize Confucius classics. All those classes has nothing, nothing whatsoever to do with actual act of administration. Right. Right. Remember, Confucius is not going to help you to defend yourself against, you know, Mongolian raider from the north, or help you to alleviate, you know, famine. So it's very interesting that in period China you have this kind of testing tradition. Now, what got transmitted is not so much the content of the testing; it is the form, the very act, the very ritual of like you have to take the test. Yeah. So. Current day China, it is it has none of those Asian class, Asian Chinese. You know, everybody you know try to be the functionary, everybody trying to obey the state, but still the same kind of ritual. Now, I think this kind of ritual is specific to China,、uh, mainly because it's just so many students are competing for few, so few spots within Chinese university. There's just not enough resources to go around, so everybody can go to the schools. So yeah, the, the the test isn't the same as the ancient test. The test has changed. It now tests the very practical subjects, similar to the SAT. But its social function essentially hasn't changed, because getting a good score on the Gaokao means getting into a good school, and getting into a good school is perceived as the great launch into the upper echelons of society in China. In China, where you go to school. It's so important to people, and if you go to Tsinghua, you're gonna have different future than somebody who ends up in like other school. Okay, so in you know in ancient China, if you get do very well in a test, you become like Jing Shi, like you become like you basically going through the rank. You get a county examination. This you know you have the province, and then the emperor will come to you know ex,、uh, give you examination. Getting a good education, getting good test score for the Chinese because of that. Chinese tradition has always been about elevation of so,、uh, social status. So get a very good test score, successful to compete against other candidates means you are viewed culturally as superior. Don't forget that when you die in China, especially from Guangzhou province, more traditional part of China, they they engrave like the kind of education, the kind of university you go to on your grave. Getting a good score in the test is still seen as life altering. Same way that it was seen as life-altering in the ancestral imperial examinations, it's not just a cultural status symbol, though. Since the '90s, the Chinese government has intentionally been trying to bolster its top universities, both with resources and prestige. In its newest iteration of this campaign, the questionably named Double Top Program, the government has delineated 42 schools in China that are to be considered the world-class institutions. And to that end, they've poured huge resources into them. If you're a college applicant, those 42 schools are the ones that you want to get into. Even though there are these 42 top schools spread around the country, you really, really want to get into the schools in Beijing or Shanghai. It's not just that they are the best; they are the best in China. But it's not just that. 
access to those schools also grants you access to Beijing or Shanghai hukos or the living registrations so that after you graduate, you can live in the big cities. So it's just the case that in China, getting into a certain school can change your life. This is why the competition is so fierce. To understand why it's considered this like great leveling up, you have to understand the role that education plays in Chinese society. You have to understand education's role in the state and the Chinese government. Education is the path to power. In terms of like the actual outcome, it really just depends on the person. But in terms of perception, it's huge because, you know, I lived in China and I live in France. France is very much like China. If you go getting to like their grands écoles, like their like top ranking schools in France, people really just like glorify you. Same thing happening in China. Now, the question is why? Why do two of those societies view education in such kind of way? I think they have similarity in the sense that both society, France and China, has a very strong unitary state. So the state is very strong. State plays such a pivotal role in both French and Chinese society that everything it does is automatically think as a kind of like authority. So education, I think, in China and also in France is a way for the state to confer with you privileges. Right. If you go to Tsinghua, state is going to give you this and this and that. You are automatically being valued by the state. And if you value by the state, you are valued by the society. So when you have this kind of scenario, when the state rewards you with like a, a higher level of privileges and all those, uh, education then become associate, you know, with this idea of like elevating your social or classes. So if you go to Tsinghua, you're automatically being considered like, okay, you are like a cadre, you're like a ganbu. You're no longer like the workers. You're like one of the top intelligentsia. And as a result, you're gonna rule the country, rule the people because you are smart. Uh, everything you do has to do with education and education outcome determines basically the outcome of your life. This is the peak insight here. Education in China is the ranking system for the state. And based on your scores, you become an eligible citizen. Education is explicitly the path to power. And this is why people break themselves physically, mentally, and emotionally to get a good score on the Gaokao. So the Gaokao is the indicator. It may not perfectly predict your success in the future, but if you play by the rules of the state, you take the test and you do well, there is no other college entrance process. Well, it's not that simple. There, there is some finagling involved in the aftermath of the Gaokao. But there's no, like, application process, really. Your ranking in the tests allows you access automatically to a certain level of school. With so much riding on just this one test, it begs the question... Does that make a society fairer or less fair? That, that is a very interesting argument because the idea when you have this kind of test is that it's fair, right? You know, uh, the Gaokao doesn't discriminate, right? You know, Gaokao, look at Gaokao, take Gaokao, you know, you, you were going to create this kind of perfect meritocracy. It's the same thing in France. Everybody has to take a Gaokao in France too. It's very, very difficult, extraordinarily difficult. And uh, is that fair? 
Okay, from the perspective of like everyone, like in China, yeah, it is fair because it seems fair, but it's actually quite unfair. I mean, that's a function of ideology, right? So it is there, but it pretends not to be there. For ideology to function, it needs to disappear. If you know the mechanism, how school actually calculates the score, it's extremely unfair. Now, if you're from Shanghai, right? You have Shanghai Hukou. You are resident of Shanghai.、Um, The threshold you need to do to do to go to like a first tier university is much lower than had you from like other province. Now let's not even talk about the fact that Shanghai attracts the best, most talented teacher or、uh, most best kind of institution in China. I'm just talking about the scoring is you know messed up. If you are from Beijing, getting to Beida and Renda is not hard, but if you're on Guizhou, you need to be like the top student. And in Guizhou, the the threshold is very high. It is very high. And in recent years, especially last like ten years or so, there have been steady decreasing of the amount of Chinese students in elite university that have a rural background. They just began to disappear. So this is what he means by there is an unfair system. In the process of picking applicants, the best schools, which are in Beijing and Shanghai, seem to reserve more spots for local students in that city. So if I'm a student from Shanghai, I have a better chance of getting into Fudan University than an applicant, let's say, who's applying from Jiangsu Province, because the best schools only take the top kids from a given province. In a place like Jiangsu Province, competition is particularly fierce. Jiangsu is a province that has a huge population, and it has really, really good schools. So even if they have the top students. The students who do the best on the test, a student from Jiangsu, is still less likely to get into a Shanghai school. This system creates all sorts of perverse incentives for people to falsify their residency and move their residence to big cities to try to get their students into these good schools. The system becomes more and more unequal because what happens is that elite replicate themselves, right? So the elites, if your parents go to Tsinghua, you know, I'm going to. Equip my kids with the kind of elite education. I'm going to send him like a elite kindergarten. I'm going to equip him with like a laowai to talk, speak, practice English with. I'm going to equip with him team of tutors for every subject. So when that happens, it is really, really difficult for a person who does not have enough resources to compete. So much like in the United States, wealthy people equip their kids with the best tutoring and help to get them those good scores. And let's not even talk about the fact that the fact that if you're born in Shanghai, you already had an edge in terms of scoring. It's insanity, basically. If you could like Guizhou, to kind of resource they get is nothing. Like the kids in Shanghai, wow, they have everything. They're just there. They just need to take it. Like literally, they just need to take it. Like their choice is like, yeah, if I really, really mess up, I go to Sichuan University. Like that's like for a Shanghai student, that's like humiliation. <laughs> But Sichuan University, you know how many people in the Southwest dream of going to that school? So many. But like for the for for the Shanghai needs, it's just like no big deal. The kind of inequality goes on and on, and you can see that replicated in every level of the society. This isn't even to mention that the test, like the SAT, is culturally biased as well. If your first language isn't Mandarin, or you come from a non-Han Chinese ethnic background, the test could be significantly harder for you.
So Chinese education is like this brutal 12-year process that culminates in an equally brutal test. These are only the faults about sort of the testing system itself. The actual schooling system, the process of getting through school in China, has a whole another slew of problems. But I today just wanted to focus on the testing system, the college entrance system. This is the system that some students want to escape because it's so stressful and it's so difficult. It values nothing about a student except for their ability to compete on a set of standards. So, what if you want to take a different path? Well, one option is that you can apply to study abroad, which in China has this long history of conferring status upon Chinese students. In continuously throughout modern Chinese history, especially you know, beginning with the fall of Qing Dynasty, the kind of people that came back and become elite tend to be the kind of people who had education abroad. You know, the first president of China,、uh, you know, Sun Yanzi, you know, the Guofu, the founder of the Republic of China. He himself went to America to study when he was 14. He is American citizen, in fact, and you know, he had this kind. And all his Tongmenghui, basically his original Kuomintang party, all of them had education abroad. Deng Xiaoping studied abroad. And all of them had this kind of experience. So there's this association of going abroad,、uh, link this association with going abroad with modernity. Modernization is like going abroad, going outside of China,、uh, study, and then bring the knowledge back to China. You know, the greatest Chinese folklore is the Monkey King. And what is Monkey King doing? It's about the journey of going to India to bring the book, the Buddhist treatise, back to China. So this idea of going abroad to study at this like great adventure of like going there to bring something back that China doesn't have. So they valorize they valorize that a lot. So tremendous. I mean, it's a cultural thing. So in China, getting into the top schools lets you level up, but because studying abroad has this historical antecedent and even this sort of mythical aura around it. It is also seen as this leveling up, that you're taking knowledge from other places and using it to bring China up. It's also sort of a respectable way that if you can't necessarily make the top grade, that you can still go on to pursue a great education and come back and be seen as a valuable member of society. In this way, it's like a pressure relief valve. It allows good students who can't take. Or don't want the pressure of the Chinese system to have another way to respectability. To be clear, I'm I'm not trying to argue that that's its only merit. I mean, I I studied abroad as well. I understand how important and how great it is to study abroad. And when Fei also sees the value in foreign education as well. I think the the, the benefits are tremendous.、Uh, the thing about American university in specific, rather than say German or French university, that American ed- education really will transform you as a person. Now, how does it do this? Well, first thing first is that you have so many opportunity open to you. American university extremely well funded. The education, regardless of whether it's like. Uh, you know, UIUC, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, or or Harvard, offer you top-rated academic experiences. The kind of exposure to research that American education emphasizes is huge. Anybody I know that has a degree from American university at Chinese are very capable. I see them more capable than the vast majority of Chinese graduate from China, and they have their own mind, right? They they are very independent. So that case, in terms of just cognitive development, it's immense. On the other hand, is also cross-cultural communication. You know, you know how to talk with different kind of people. 
you learn that you really didn't learn anything in Chinese universities because the ironic thing is that majority of Chinese universities, you don't need to try hard at all. Like after you get in, it's really easy to graduate. I think American high school is easy, but American colleges are hard. I mean, you have to write your papers. If you're an engineer, you have to do those awful project that take what take many all-nighters to do you have to fend for yourself and you know and for a lot of my clients have very privileged family in china i mean they have their own driver they're very like you know privileged but in america you're just another chinese guy you're just another chinese girl you learn how to become a person who will face problem discriminated racially you learn those kind of things that you don't learn elsewhere so after you came back actually um all of them become better version of themselves So Wenfei's students are the students who have, for some reason, opted out of the Gaokao system. So who are the students that Wenfei works with? Who are the students from China that go abroad? I would say that they are definitely elite of the society. Yeah. They're definitely the elite. There are no, no like countryside bumpkin who like uh, go to any university to study. Uh, they're definitely the social elite. A lot of Chinese uh, students, they will choose Tsinghua, Beida over like any American colleges. A lot of people want to go to American colleges because they either do not think, they either think that they cannot compete successfully within the Chinese system, or they just have other goals in mind. It, the fact that they decide not to compete does not invalidate their intelligence. There are kind of Chinese students who are very intelligent and who survived through the Gaokao system. But I would say that uh, going through Gaokao have this kind of traumatic experience produce a different kind of person than the one that, you know, end up, you know, going to American university, American colleges. Unfortunately, the vast majority of students who get the opportunity to study abroad from China are very, very wealthy. Wen Fei tells the students to prepare 4 million RMB in order to pay for the process, because it's just not the case that American colleges give scholarships to Chinese kids. These kids, except for a few exceptions, are paying full price. And again, since 2008, American colleges have come to rely a lot more on the revenue from Chinese students, who, in some cases, are actually paying more than full tuition to matriculate. Wen Fei clarifies here that his students may not be the top, top students in China, but none of them are slouches either. The sheer work they have to do just to be eligible to study in the United States is ridiculous. At 10th grade, you need to finish all the work that you were doing 11th and 12th. In order to get the IB class, you need to already have a predicted score of higher than 38. <laughs> and 38 is a very high score. That's equal to 3.8 GPA. And if you fail that mark, they literally kick you out. You can remove to other schools. The process is brutal. But even if these students are amazing, some parents worry that their kids won't get in abroad. Because for these students, at some point, they've opted out of taking the Gaokao. And in China, if you choose to opt out like that and decide that you want to study abroad, it's often the case that you can't change back to study for the Gaokao. Again, getting a bad grade is like punishing you and punishing your family. So for them, a lot of times, the only way to survive is to cheat. The only way to get ahead 
is to copy answer from other people. It's quite prevalent. There are a lot of ways to that university do to prevent it, but it's rampant. It's it's everywhere. And a lot of intense pressure therefore gets put on Wenfei to get these students in. And this makes for a very lucrative and very sketchy business. As we've explored, because education is the path to respectability and power, there's a lot of pressure all throughout the Chinese education system to cheat. For some parents, the option to send their kids abroad is seen as sort of a last resort because they worry that their student can't get into the top schools here in China. This is why cheating to get into schools abroad is particularly rampant. If parents fear their kid can't make the grade, then they want to cut corners to get them in. I'm not trying to implicate Wen Fei here, but even he admits that there's a lot of cheating in his industry. Fraudulence is everywhere in this Chinese education system, since it has nothing to do about learning, has to do about advancing yourself within a society. So from test score to um, to just basically the fact that you pay somebody else to write your essays, or or just pay your teacher to raise your GPA. I mean, it is everywhere in China. So there's a couple types of cheating. So first, there's just the cheating on the tests. There are two tests that Chinese kids need to pass if they want to get into a school in the U.S. One is obviously the SAT, and the other is the TOEFL test, which tests an applicant's English abilities. Cheating has happened a lot on both of these tests. You know, selecting a testing center so their kids can cheat. You know, selecting a specific test center where you know they can. They ask me for past paper of SAT. Uh, they ask me to. I mean, all kind of stuff. But normally, first of all, I would tell parents what you're asking for is totally ridiculous. Like the consequences of what you're going to do is so dramatic. If you copy your test in TOEFL or cheat on SAT. It's a criminal offense because when they have to get their visa, and TOEFL is a the way that Department of State used to evaluate where whether they will give your student a visa, and if that material is fraudulent, you are lying to the United States of America, and it's a criminal offense, and that is immediate deportation. Plus, if you don't get like if you're lucky, you don't get in prison. At one point, the SATs were actually canceled in parts of Asia back in 2018 because of worries of rampant cheating at the testing centers. There is the second type of cheating as well, which is cheating on the soft skill assessments. This is actually where cheating is probably more prevalent. So I always tell parents about this. Sometimes they will ask me to like write a student's essay for them, you know, pay off certain amount of money. I would just not do it because I know that, I know, I know what college admission officer want, and my essay, college admission officer, no, they know it's written by other people. You know, I don't really charge parents that much money. Uh, compared to other company, the some company v- offer what you call VIP services and up to three million RMB, <laughs> and they do help their students do everything, including creating fake high schools, <laughs> so they kind of fake graduation certificate. But it's wild. I mean, it's it's wild, like, uh, like the length that people go to do this kind of stuff. A lot of company promising them ridiculous stuff, like yeah, like guaranteed admission. I mean. Especially with the college scandal thing, I know so many Chinese students that pay their way into colleges. I know Ivy League professors that were bribed <laughs> to write recommendation letters. I can't attest to what Wen Fei says here about the Ivy League professor. It seems like a very serious claim, but I do have friends in this industry, and they can attest to writing personal essays for Chinese students. But any a lot of the illegitimate stuff just don't work because admission officers are not dumb. They are not idiots. They can see it. 
they can see it. So you know, so it ends up not working. I have you know, crazy experiences with a lot Hopefully of those. Hopefully, it does work, right? Like sometimes, in, right? sometimes. But I mean, admission officers are getting smarter and smarter. They can't tell what kind of thing is fake. Um, they can't tell because in recent years, especially uh, the colleges, universities in uh, America, they tend to hire an admission officer that specialize specifically in China or like Asia Pacific. So they know what kind of students they are gonna get. They know what kind of transcript is like. Uh, it's basically relevant. In the United States, in the past year, we've become familiar with cheating scandals. There was the case where celebrities were paying to get their kids into good schools. In Louisiana, there was the TM Landry School that was fabricating sad stories that played into racial stereotypes to help their kids get into Ivy League schools. In October, the courts ruled in Harvard's favor in the controversial case about Harvard possibly discriminating against Asian applicants. In the process, it was exposed that Harvard essentially has this back door to let in students that the college sees as valuable, even if they don't have the necessary qualifications. As Wen Fei has shown us, the application process from China isn't that much better, maybe even worse. Here's the thing. We know that this system is broken. If we see this process just from a perspective of abject fraudulence, it's clearly all a farce. It's a system where families that have means and connections not only have a leg up, but they have a back door into the upper echelons of society. But look, let's, for argument's sake, pretend that this isn't the case. Let's pretend that cheating isn't a widespread problem in Wenfei's business, because the truth is that there are a lot of exceptional students studying abroad in the United States who do write their essays and don't cheat on the tests. There are so many students who earnestly cherish the opportunity to get away from China to gain the benefits of a life and an education abroad. So let's talk about the legitimate college process, the work that Wenfei does to help kids get into schools in the United States. Because even without the rampant cheating that totally undermines the process, the process itself is still sort of insidious and strange. When you want to have better college prospects in China, you hire a math tutor or an English tutor. Getting into college in the United States is a different beast, and you need to hire somebody like Wen Fei, somebody who sees the ideology in the process, someone who knows the game. The college process in the United States, like in China, does involve submitting test scores. Then there are soft skill assessments that are required. Essays, personal statements, interviews, these are the things that Chinese parents pay big bucks to have Wen Fei help their kids with. The college application in the United States, much like the Gaokao score, confers status upon a student. If a student successfully matriculates into their top school, not only does it mean that they are a good student, but it also means, as we like to say, that they are well-rounded. Being well-rounded, of course, means having good grades and being involved in the right sort of activities. But well-rounded goes beyond that. It also means students have to have a sort of essence that colleges are looking for. We think of it as this unquantifiable aspect, a personality, a charm. It's a certain relaxed poise that gives off the essence that an individual has a rich interior life, something ineffable and unteachable. 
Except when Faye is actually paid to teach kids how to be well-rounded. And he has a very high success rate. It is so formulaic. Everybody knows. Nobody will tell you about it. You know, it's like uh, racism in the United States. You walk into a room. Nobody, you know, everybody is nice, but you know what they're thinking, you know. So, yeah, there is very specific kind of thing that you have to do uh, in order to get into school. It ties with how admission officer or how universities imagine Chinese or American students. It's all about projecting this image of a very well-rounded, this magical student who excel in everything, but who is also quirky and personable. Um, so like the key thing for American university is that you need to feed, fit into the mode that each university routinely, you know, choose. And so each university have a different kind of personality. The kind of personality that Stanford like is very different from kind of personality that Harvard like. Now it is my job to basically create personalities in students. And the way we do that is very simple, is by basically training them to act in a certain way, to speak in a certain way, to interview in a certain way, so they can get in. So if you see this in the context of all that like college scandal kind of stuff, this sounds like a kind of cheating in a way, doesn't it? Wen Fei also just sounds horrible because he sounds like he's creating personalities in these students, like they don't already have personalities. But that's not really the case. Wen Fei understands instinctively that you have to project yourself in a certain way. This quote-unquote well-roundedness isn't actually subjective really at all. Specific schools have specific criteria that they want students to have, and Wenfei just helps students practice that. One of the reasons he has learned this lesson so acutely, that you have to hone a certain personality, was from his own college process, when just filling out the application wasn't enough. Now, if I'm an American hearing this, I would say that you sound like a bad guy. But convince me why you're not a bad guy. Why is this Why is this a systematic problem rather than a Wenfei problem? So here's the thing is that from my own experience, why I applied to American University, I was interested in doing philosophy and comp sign. So I applied and, you know, I just sent in the application. I was like, yeah, this is what I do. I treat it like basically as a minor, trivial, or even annoying task. But this is not how college admission works. The thing is that with majority of uh, majority of the knowledge about how to apply to colleges of what kind of college select what kind of student is transmitted informally. Now, if you go to American high schools, uh, private or public high school, no counselor will tell you exactly what the college are looking for because those said by them that colleges would just want your whole self. They just want your true self, your true personality and all those. But that we know is not true. Uh, the reason why certain kids in America do not need to do this is because, again, the knowledge of how to apply to university is passed by the families. So if your father goes to Harvard or go to Georgetown, he knows like the way, you know, he knows how to get in. He know what kind of thing, or what kind of personality that you need to be in order to get into the schools. So it is fundamentally unfair for people who are a minority who do not speak English to try to game the system because the American college education, the, the entire higher education system is extremely sophisticated in terms of how they select the people. They have very um, quasi quantitative processes of like basically what kind of student they're looking for. All of them will tell you that they want passion the student, but each one of them will have a very numeric criteria of what exactly defines, you know, passion. So for me, I have Chinese students who had extraordinary experiences 
but they never know that such experience is valuable. So it is my job to dig out from that Chinese students the kind of passion that you know American college is looking for. If you're just rich white guy from like Connecticut went to prep school, I mean you will already automatically had all this knowledge because this is how you were brought up. <laughs> you are supposed to do A B C D E F G. You probably were in varsity football since you were like seven because I don't know you know your dad played. Football, your uncle do, and so why not you, right? So you have all those, but you know we must be aware that immigrant family and Asians、uh, Chinese student do not have the same kind of privilege. I mean, I started my job, I started, I, I started in this industry in America, and my clients was like you know Asian American and Hispanic Americans. Really, would I have like white kids coming for me to do like、uh, counseling? When I first heard about this business in China, I thought it was kind of I don't know, just kind of bullshitty. I mean, parts of it are honestly, and it's just far too expensive. A lot of it is just glorified SAT tutoring. But now I see the value in what Wenfei and his company provides. You see, we have a cycle in the United States of a self-perpetuating elite as well, which I think comes as no surprise. Wenfei didn't know this when he said it, but I actually did grow up in Connecticut. I wasn't a football player, but I was a rower. I went to an exceptional public high school. Um, I had relatives and a lot of their friends that were all college educated, and all of this made me very well acculturated into what the college process was like. I even remember sitting down with my stepdad and him telling me what schools are sort of good matches for me based on my personality. I didn't worry about going into a college interview or writing my essay all that much because most of the lessons I needed to learn I learned through acculturation. I was raised to be a product of that system. Chinese kids, but not just Chinese kids, a lot of kids in America too, need a little help packaging themselves in a way that college admissions people can see their value as candidates. What is it the perceived thing that they lack from from like a college perspective? So American universities,、uh, whether you're getting or not,、uh, really depends on just one thing:、um, the file that you send to the colleges. Now, a lot of Chinese students have same kind of files. They 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 very good test scores. They have this and that, but they don't really know how to present themselves. So for Americans, American admission officer and Americans in general, when they see this, it's like oh, just another Chinese kid. All the Chinese, all the students I had. Even the most mediocre one has something unique about them because that's a fundamental fact about human nature. But the thing is that not a lot of people know how to narrate their story. So I'm like basically like an editor of their life. I select the kind of experiences I know it is going to get them ahead of other students, and I delete the kind of experiences I think is going to be totally unnecessary that is going to actually damage like their chance of admission. I don't think we're in trick the admission officer, and sometimes the kind of experiences story that they think well. Pick where intrigued admission officer is not the kind of experience that admissions officer were like. For for example, they would tell like, "Well, you know, I studied very hard for the SAT. I went through a lot of trouble, and yeah, it's a lot of trouble for、it's、Chinese. Trouble. Oh my God, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of time spent. It's tremendously difficult. But admission officer simply do not value this experience.、Yeah. And I took care of them advice. Now some people do not take my advice. You know, they want to include that particular piece of life, which I would think is totally unnecessary. I had a student who um include included this uh you know this part of like one of his activity as a young pioneer. Uh, you know, he thought was very interesting. He think the fact that he participated in the Communist Youth League is something that is so prestigious. 
But when Americans see this, they probably think you are a spy. <laughs> Goodbye. So that's what's so unfortunate about this whole thing. Because I know exactly what the mission officers are like. I, I don't know exactly what they like, but I can empathize with them in a lot of sense. They like the kind. For example, if you are Chinese female, is that LGBT is like, oh, LGBT China is so radical. You know, it's not exactly that radical actually. But like the admission officers think, wow, it's amazing how they're LGBT in China. Like the years ago, like five years ago. The big thing about cultural revolution, like, wow, you were persecuted during cultural revolution. I'm like, come on, this this, this guy, like Xi Jinping's father, got prosecuted during the cultural revolution. Yeah. It was, so was a big deal. It's like this is something that everybody experiences. But from American, um, from from American point of view, that is something that they think is like huge, but actually is quite minor. I always. Tell my students. I always give them a list of grievances that they can complain. I mean, I we have a collection of all the essays that you know the kind of essay that we have seen written for Princeton, and you know. But the idea that you got to portray yourself in such a way that you have this air of being humble, but what actually you are, like Ivanka Trump, we know it's far from reality. <sighs> This is the part that just feels a little bit weird to me. As an American exploiting potentially sensitive parts of our history or identity on our college application seems like par for the course. We even go so far as to cultivate hobbies and activities that we know will help us later in the college admissions process. That's just how it is. But it feels kind of icky hearing Wenfei talk about this in this context. What it seems like Wenfei is saying is that he advises his students to play into biases that the admissions officers have about China, and that's more important than honestly representing your own experiences—experiences experiences that those students have found valuable. Based on the examples that Wenfei gives here, what college admissions people expect from Chinese students is that they present themselves as having this awareness of the negative aspects of China. They're asked to distance themselves or define themselves in contrast to certain aspects of China that may or may not even pertain to their personal story. It seems like the students have to play into this American media bias about China rather than telling their own legitimate stories. Wenfei wouldn't advise them to do this if it didn't work on the college admissions people, which I think is just kind of fucked. But like you know, big shrug. We all have to do this. We all have to play into those biases in some way. We have to prove that we're unique, because what colleges really want and promise is to cultivate a diverse student body. But Wenfei also calls this into question. I I think from the perspective of colleges, especially of private colleges. They don't have obligation to society. They are, at the end of the day, private institution with their own priority and incentive and all those. So I don't think they have this kind of.、Uh, they do not necessarily have to have social responsibility, especially regarding to international students. But first thing first, yeah, I think I agree with you in the sense that they create a very homogeneous kind of Harvard club or Princeton club kind of culture. It would be seen bizarre to people the kind of Chinese student who end up in Harvard or Stanford, all those. Peer institutions are—they are privileged children. They and those are the students that you know Stanford and Harvard and all those institutions unfortunately prefer, because if with privilege and power, money comes SAT score and great essays and great education and ability to play golf. You know, you don't and you don't go go to Harvard to become empowered. No, 
The reason why you can get into Harvard is because you're already privileged and empowered. You just go there so you can socialize with other empowered and qualified and privileged person. You know. Diversity is a very squishy concept, and there there could be lots of definitions for it. But I think my general idea about what diversity means is that diversity is meaningful if it helps people who are underserved in some particular way get a chance to matriculate into elite universities or institutions. But what I wonder is if in the United States, when we are cherry picking the quote unquote well-rounded students, if what we are really doing is just Perpetuating an elite that is either privileged enough, like me, to already have the knowledge on how to present yourself, or at least has the largesse to learn how to play the game. The diversity that our top universities breed, in at least the applicants from China, are people who may have presented themselves uniquely, but they really just represent the wealthiest of the wealthy. Wenfei is someone who understands these systems and is a product of these systems. He sees through the jargon that we in America apply to this process that's supposed to be fair. It seems like Wenfei is just really good at exploiting ideology. You know, the funny thing I always tell people is that Americans love to talk as a concept of the self. You know, you need to present the authentic self to Harvard or to Stanford to all the colleges. And if you have passion as self, you have this personality, they're gonna love you. But self, you know, in the words of you know what Whitman, I sing myself, and what I shall assume you shall assume. But what exactly is self? American never asks what exactly is self. There is no self. It just be yourself. But what exactly is self? The self is kind of empty form. It's a form through which you insert all the kind of thing, and then it becomes your own personhood. So my role is to fill that void, which we call self. We need to manufacture that personality. I think back to that girl in that speech competition, the one that I judged. In the more objective ways, grammar and composition, her speech was flawless. But I dinged her on the delivery and possibly cost her a win. In her context, she did perfectly. I just evaluated her from a completely different frame of reference. These kinds of evaluations are subjective. But the truth is, each culture has its own idea. About what success looks like. Fairness in a given culture is very ideological. In China, there's this idea that numbers are fair; that they are the objective arbiters of who should and who should not hold power. But we can see so clearly through that game. It comes down to who wields these numbers and which numbers we choose to value within the society. In the United States, we have our numbers game as well, with similar defects and biases. But we've also saddled a group of individuals within elite institutions to be the arbiters of what well-functioning and successful personalities are. Wenfei has shown us this problem. Does this seem like a more fair system? If anything, it seems like it perpetuates privilege for the already privileged. And in the context of China, it operates from this sense of cultural imperialism. I don't know. Do I feel bad for Wenfei's students, particularly? I don't know, not really. Their families probably have enough money that they won't suffer too much if they don't get into an American college. But like, 
their parents have to spend a ton of money on this process because there's this weird expectation that these Chinese kids have to act a certain way to get into college. What a weird, unnecessary, and humiliating process to go through to prove their worth. Ultimately, to be admitted to the schools because they have the grades and schools in America need their money. And if we're all being taught to adopt a persona to get into a school rather than being our unique self, then what is the point of this process? Maybe this process isn't a litmus test about finding the most unique candidates. Maybe it's more of a litmus test about judging people's class. Yo, after this, I'll never be accepted to grad school. <laughs> at, least in, at least not in the United States. You've been listening to Strangers in China. Strangers in China was produced by me, Clay. This episode, I'm proud to welcome our new researcher, Shun Yao. Thanks for all your help on this one. If you're interested in all the research that went into this, you can check out all of our notes on the episode at our show page at subchina.com. Strangers in China is mastered by Kaiser Kuo. Strangers in China is part of the Seneca Network, powered by SubChina. I don't know if y'all have noticed, but um, we're kind of a little bit uh, inconsistent about having a co-host on this show. So I'm putting out a call out for anybody who is interested, who lives in Shanghai, who wants to be a co-host on the show. You can send your resume to our email address, which is strangersinchinaofficial at gmail.com. So if you or someone you know wants to help co-host this, know that it takes a lot of work, but it's really fun. Um, just send us an email, please. Follow us on Twitter at Stranger in China. Follow us on Instagram at Strangers in China. Like us on Facebook at Strangers in China. Thanks to Nauna Shanghai for letting us use their recording studio. Shout out to Monty. Our theme song is Analytical Skeletons by Seizus. Other music in this episode was brought to you by Purple Cat, Jack Major, Terry Skills, Saved Bitch, Artist Unknown 2, Seizus, Lofi, and JMC. Happy Chinese New Year, everyone. Next time on Strangers in China. I think that if you look through some of the ways that Kaiping is unique and how Kaiping is different from this broader educational system, it gives some really interesting insights. This, we'll question ourselves, what is this? Why we are doing this? Mm-hmm. And then every piece, everyone just tell you, because you're a student, so you need to do this. But everyone just tell me, when you grow up, you will understand. To all my strangers out there, here's your bonus. Okay, you hear about you know Chinese students going abroad and they like steal uh, proprietary information from universities, etc. Is there anything you want to say about that? Are there like people who move information back and forth and who are like basically the agents of the Chinese government? Yeah, they are. Just like they are agents, uh, you know, CIA operative here in China. So I mean, yeah, of course, and everybody is doing this kind of thing. But I think uh, here's the thing, right? Like the way 
the Americans is seeing it, the danger is not so much national security threat. I mean, there have always been threat to American national security in the form of students or teacher, in the form of professor that just run away with like all the knowledge, such as the guy who created the atomic bomb in China, Qian Jiesen, whom was a Air Force colonel, besides being a full, fully blown American citizen, right? Um, so you do have this danger. I mean, this kind of thing is persistent. The threat is persistent. It exists in every ages. But currently, you do have this media narrative as if every Chinese student is a spy and that certainly is not the truth and that is actually get exacerbated by how opaque the Chinese government is at you know outlining like its process of sending like Confucius institutes abroad I I personally do not believe that every Confucius Institute is like a you know spying operation center it's just paranoid it's ridiculous but are there but why do Americans think this way? I think it's because of Han Ban. They are very opaque at like basically saying like this is how we do things, right? And I do think that all this kind of uh, uh, of controversy regarding the Chinese student is kind of overblown. Are there the kind of operative? Yeah, there are. But the idea that every Chinese student is like a thief or whatever is a way overblown. Of course, it has always been transfer of technology, Chinese government, you know, state institution copy or steal, but. But the question is way overblown. It's blowing out of proportion with the current Trump administration, and it caused a lot of unnecessary and I think even collateral damages on you know the Chinese American, uh, even Asian American community due to the you know current animosity between the two countries. So yeah, I mean there are, but I think it's completely overblown.